Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. I might just get everyone to start talking a little bit, I guess, and I'll see how it sounds. Um, Perhaps you could tell me... uh, I guess when you got into Christchurch. I met Abdullah and Hanin Alayan for the first time in Christchurch just over a week ago. (laughs) Have you already talked about it? No. They started telling me about what happened on the day of the terror attack in Christchurch at the mosque where their father and brother attended. It was a blur. Mm. It was definitely a blur. They went straight to the hospital did we go to look for Dad after that? We did, yeah. So we did all yeah, the admin. We went on a, a hunt to try and find him. They knew that their dad had gone into surgery. So they knew that he had definitely been at the hospital at some point, but they hadn't heard about their brother. So they get to the hospital and their dad's name isn't anywhere and their brother's name isn't anywhere. So they basically just start rushing from room to room on a hunt to try and find either of them. Because we could, we'd been told by so many people that he'd been seen. Yeah. He'd seen, came out of surgery, that he was okay. We went to every ward, we couldn't find him anywhere. And he wasn't on the, the list either. There's this list at the hospital, and there's a number of anonymous patients on the list, people who have been in surgery, but they don't have names for them. So kind of earlier in the night, we were thinking, okay, well, if there's still 17 unconfirmed people, then there's hope that our brother's also here as one of those anonymous um, patients. Eventually, really late at night. After kind of just chaotic back and forth with the police and whoever's handling it, they did end up finding out exactly who every single one of those anonymous patients were. And they read them out. They, yeah. A doctor who's part of the Muslim community in Christchurch comes into a waiting room and he essentially stands up and he starts reading the names. There's one, two, three, four. And halfway down, our dad was read out. Their father's name is called and they feel this sense of relief. But as more and more names are being called and they don't hear their brothers, they just start to feel their chests clench up. Kept hearing more and more names getting read out, and the more that got read out, the more I knew. Pretty much when the death toll climbed, I think it started at like nine when we first checked. It went from six to nine to 30 to to 45 to, to, yeah. Yeah. The more it climbed, the more we realized what are the chances that they both made it. Yeah. And then we just, we got to the end, and our brother's name hadn't been read out. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. 
Today, New Zealand is holding a National Day of Remembrance for the 50 people killed in the mosque shootings in Christchurch. The majority of the victims and their families were migrants or refugees from countries like Pakistan, India, Malaysia, and Indonesia. My colleague, Charlotte Cram McClay, spent several days with one of the families. It's Friday, March 29th. So the Alayan family, Muhammad is their father, Maysoon is their mom, and the three kids are Atta, Hanin, and Abdullah. Atta was born in Kuwait City in 1985, which is where his parents were living at the time. Mm. And what do they do? That's a really good question. <laughs> Have you got an hour? <laughs> what don't they do? They're ethnically Palestinian and were both scientists. I've heard so many accounts of mum juggling raising her son and kind of lecturing and sorting out her PhD and bringing him into really unsafe labs. <laughs> so, yeah, And they only came to New Zealand when a university here wanted beef research, and that's what their father did. So that's when Christchurch became Arthur's home in 1995. He used to sit on a Macintosh, yeah. Macintosh computer. Yeah. Those really old ones with the, what's that duck shooting game? I'm not sure. These old, old Macs that look like bricks. Yes. used to go and, and sit there while she was doing her work and display that game. Yeah. He was an only child for eight and a half years before his siblings came along. And it seems like he grew up as this sort of golden child. He was really good at sport. <laughs> he scored an Just own goal one. once. <laughs> and he was a goalkeeper. However, he also scored a goal from a goalkeeping position. Which is which incredible. Is, yeah. So when his parents first moved to Christchurch, his father was one of the leadership figures at the Al Noor Mosque. But the mosque was integral to kind of yeah. uh, bringing... In our life, it was beyond childhood. Yeah. I was probably there more than most every week, you know? How did Arta wrestle with that in high school? Because high school is a test for everyone. Mm. It is. This is kind of that struggle with identity and the kind of a Western context. He went to the same high school as I did. He was really, really effective at kind of, you know, blending in and being, you know, just like any other Kiwi. Mm. But also in saying that, he's he was one to absolutely embrace his Muslim identity. And he kind of brought that around with him in a really effective way, in the way that it's relatable. So I think obviously there's a bit of a, um, a struggle to assimilation or the opposite. But I think for me, I'm not the most sporty person out there. And there's, it's interesting because, I mean... Everything I was interested in was not, not really what defined Christchurch Boys High. Like I did drama and debating and all these kind of more cultural things that literally no one respected. So one thing he kind of advised me was that getting into sport really does unlock doors socially. And and absolutely, in hindsight, I can yeah, completely see that he wasn't wrong. And being into his sports just made him more accessible to people that he otherwise wouldn't be. And we we often kind of discussed our high school experiences and I've always lived through kind of his mistakes and his experiences and it's, he literally was like my second father. He'd gone through a lot of this stuff himself. Yeah. You know, he was always teaching us from his mistakes. It sounds like he... That's going to be something we're going to really miss. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I'm pretty stubborn in general, and I don't 
really take advice from a lot of people. But anytime I want some advice, I'd go to him for everything and he'd always have the answer for everything. And it would be the perfect answer every time. How do you begin to process something like this? I mean, yeah, look, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I think processing it is going to take a very long time. I don't think we've started. Yeah, we haven't. 100% haven't started processing yet. I mean, the first day and the second day were, were pretty tough, but I think we've kind of pulled it together a little bit for the sake of mom and father. But it's going to be a long, long road. And I think things are going to come up every now and again where – I don't know, for me, it's going to be, oh, man, I want some advice or I want to talk to Arthur about this or he's not here kind of thing. I'm sure that's going to be years of pain for all of us. I don't think there's enough words to describe what it means for them in voice. The only reason um, that I'm doing architecture is because I saw one of his one of his graphics projects pinned up on his wall. I mean, in hindsight, I actually kind of hated it. Like it was like this yellow Simpsons-looking house, <laughs> and it's pinned up on his wall. And I just saw the floor plans and the sketches, and I was so inspired. And interestingly, it's something he sacrificed yeah. to stay close to home. He didn't want to go to Wellington to study architecture because he didn't want to be far from home. He wanted two things. He wanted to be an architect or a dentist. And this one's an architect and I'm a dentist. Yeah. And I had to put both of those dreams on hold because he didn't want to split the family up. Arthur stayed in Christchurch. He decided to study computer sciences. And after his degree, he developed a business in app design. It was during this time that he met Farah. Arthur was an angel, honestly, not because he was my husband. He was too good to be true. She lived in Jordan at the time, and so they had this long-distance courtship for a while. I felt that this was the man I want to marry. I was very sure that I wanted Arthur to be the father of my children because he had every single thing that I wanted in a man. So where was the wedding? It was in Jordan. And tell me about it. What was it like? Uh, the best, best part for me was when Farah sang to him. We didn't know she could sing. That's something we didn't know about her at the time. And no one expected it. She kept it as a surprise. And she walked in partway through. We heard some singing. We didn't realize it was her. But she walked in singing a beautiful song in Arabic and English. And she sang it to him. And he cried. And we all cried. And it was a beautiful moment. Then they had a little girl, a baby, named Aya. He, he never sang before that. He never sang before his daughter. I'd never heard him sing. She's nearly two. How do you, how do you explain to Aya what, what have you told her? Um, so far, Aya has been busy with, you know, like uh, a lot of children around. Just maybe two days ago, she woke up in the middle of the night crying and she was calling for her dad and then I calmed her down and she slept back and then the other day she heard the plane and she's like Papa 
I'm like, yeah. She's like, Oakland? Because just Monday at night, he went to Oakland to where Abdullah is, his brother. So I'm like, yeah, mama, baba, he, he, yeah. He's gone, but not to Oakland this time. He went to Jannah, which is heaven. So for now, this is what I'm going to tell her, that he traveled to this place, but we can't call him and that he, he's gone to this place, where it's heaven, not Oakland. <laughs> So right now we're just waiting to get the call from the police to say you can you can come and see the body now and after that we can get started on the steps towards the burial and after that we're just going to wait. So two days later our photographer Adam was with the family when Abdullah got the call that it was time to go and receive Utter's body. And Adam said their composure broke just for a moment. And they went to go and get Utter. Then overnight they washed him, Abdallah looked after that, and they shrouded him. And then they went to bury him in a mass funeral with 25 others. I was able to attend Atta's funeral. I stood in the section with the women. There were 5,000 people there. Last week's event is proof and evidence to the entire world that terrorism has no color, has no race, and has no religion. To the people of New Zealand, thank you. Thank you for your tears. Thank you for your flowers. Thank you for your love and compassion. And to all the wonderful people who have shown us that we matter and are not forgotten. Oh Allah, protect New Zealand, oh Allah, protect New Zealanders and the world. Amin, amin, wa aqib salah. Inna salata tanha amin fahshay amin minkar. Wala likar Allah akbar. When the parties proceeded into the burial area, they were asked just to keep the party small for safety reasons. They didn't want to mix up the plots. There are 37 open holes. We do not want anyone falling on those holes. They didn't want anyone to accidentally slip and fall into a grave, and so people were asked to only bring forward the closest family 
to bury their loved one. Uh, family of Naim Rashid, please come to your loved one. Please just six or eight. They read out the lists of names in groups of five. You're used to seeing at a funeral a cluster of family around a grave. But what was so striking here is that you saw five clusters of family around five graves, and then you had ten. And people were trying to have this kind of private farewell where they were all circled really closely together around each grave. But they were so close to the other families doing the same thing. And then they would encourage them to file out when they were finished, and they would read out the next five names. And can we ask the family of our sister, Shahida, sister Oscar And in the third group of five, the first name that was read out was Artis. Every five will take at a time. Before Arta's body was brought in, his father, who I recognised from pictures, was wheeled in in his wheelchair. He's been recovering from gunshot wounds in hospital, but obviously he was able to come out for his son's funeral. He was all in black, and he just waited by the grave. And then the women filed in a little way behind him, Farah and Maysoon, Arta's mum, Hanin, his sister, and some other relatives, and they were all supporting each other and holding on to each other. And then Atta's body was brought in, and I knew it was him because I could see Abdullah among those carrying the coffin. They had these open coffins with low sides, so you could see the shrouded body inside. And then Atta's dad, Muhammad, supporting himself on a cane, got out of the wheelchair and stood by the grave as Arta's body was lowered in. And everyone had their hands on him, it seemed like. Everyone had a hand on his back. And they were all supporting each other. And they all just stood there for a long time, surrounded by all of these other families doing the same. And the sheikh sang, Allahu Akbar, God is great before the bodies were lowered. They picked up their shovels and they started to shovel earth into the grave. And Abdullah, at his brother, was going around and giving everyone hugs, but these really completely stock-still hugs. He would hold each person, and they would just stand really still for a long time. Then a floral arrangement was placed on the grave, and the men filed out. They still had their hands on each other's backs. The women came to the grave for a moment and stood there too, Outside the burial area were waiting Atta's football teammates. They filed out, and then the next group of bodies was brought in. 
and that kept happening until the funeral was over. Not long after I got home, I got a text from Abdullah, and he just wanted to make sure I'd made it into the funeral okay. I told him I had, and then I asked him how he was doing. And he replied, all I can say is that I feel at peace. We haven't lost everything. We still have each other, and we're going to have to get through it together. There's no other choice. You know, life has to go on. You've got to keep living. We do have faith, even if it's maybe not quite as strong as my dad's faith. We do have faith. We believe in the afterlife. We believe he's in a better place, and, and we want to meet him there. So I just hope that, inshallah, one day we'll be again reunited um, in Jannah, in heaven. And this is what will give me the strength to, you know, to continue our dreams and goals that we could not achieve together and that we have already set. And I'm going to raise our daughter to know who her father was, be very proud of her her father, and yeah, I love him. <laughs> we'll always do. Ata Alayan was 33 years old. Officials in New Zealand now say that all 50 victims of the shooting have been identified and buried. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Here's what else you need to know today. On Thursday, the Times found that the report submitted by special counsel Robert Mueller was more than 300 pages long, suggesting that Mueller went well beyond the bare-bones summary required by law and offered a detailed explanation of his conclusions. No, thank you, Mr. Attorney General. We do not need your interpretation. Show us the report, and we can draw our own conclusions. So far, those conclusions have been summarized in a four-page document by the Attorney General, William Barr, fueling calls, especially from Democrats, for him to release the full report to both Congress and the public. We don't need you interpreting for us. It was condescending, it was arrogant, and it wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, So the sooner they can give us the information, the sooner we can all make a judgment about it. And the Supreme Court has ruled that a ban imposed by the Trump administration on bump stocks, a device that allows semi-automatic rifles to fire more like automatic rifles, can remain in place. Under the ban, which was put in place after a bump stock was used in a mass shooting in Las Vegas, it is illegal to sell or possess bump stocks, and those who currently own them have 90 days to either destroy them 
or turn them over to the government. The Daily is produced by Theo Valcom, Lindsay Garrison, Rachel Quester, Annie Brown, Andy Mills, Claire Tennisketter, Michael Simon Johnson, Jessica Chung, Alexandra Lee Young, and Jonathan Wolf, and edited by Paige Cowett, Larissa Anderson, and Wendy Dore. Lisa Tobin is our executive producer. Samantha Hennig is our editorial director. Our technical manager is Brad Fisher. Our engineer is Chris Wood. And our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Lansford of Wonderly. Special thanks to Sam Dolnick, Michaela Bouchard, Stella Tan, and Damian Cave. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you on Monday. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.